On Sunday mornings, we have been emphasizing our New Year's resolution for 2020, and that's just simply to grow, to grow. I'm, I'm endeavoring in this year to grow in several areas of my life. I want to grow as a Christian. I want to grow in my discipleship. I want to be more sensitive to the things of God in, at the end of 2020 than I am at the beginning of 2020. I want to grow in, in the fruit of the Spirit. I want to grow in some things that uh, I need to grow in, that I'm not yet where I need to be in Christ but another thing that I want to grow in is I want to grow in my marriage relationship. I, I want to grow in my marriage. We've been married this June will be 40 years. We dated five years before that. So we've been together since we were kids. But there's still areas of my life that uh, uh, in my marriage that I need to grow, that I need to give some attention to. Uh, and, and it's just like your vehicle. It's just like anything that you have for a long time. If, if you don't give it some attention and give it due proper maintenance on it, it will not continue to run at such a high level. And unfortunately, in our marriage, sometimes we think because we've been married so long, it'll just automatic, it's going to be automatically good and things of that nature. And that's not correct. That's not accurate. That's the reason the greatest number of divorces nowadays are taking place, percentage-wise, are taking place uh, with people over 50 years of age, and it's because we have just simply failed to maintain our marriage relationship. And we've got to make it a priority in our life. It has to have some attention uh, uh, of our efforts and attention of our time and attention of our resources, and that's our marriage, our greatest relationship in life. So I want to grow in my marriage, but uh, and we're talking about that, but the first thing I just want to emphasize again is growing in your faith. Look at Second Peter chapter 3. How many brought your Bibles? Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Notice what it says. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, Okay, we've been forewarned. Be on your guard. Be on our guard for what? So that you'll not be carried away by the error of law of the lawless and fall from your secure position. We are seeing it happen every single day. You, it's, it's, it's not uncommon now to see on social media or hear in the news that church organizations are falling away. Things, the Bible truths and principles and standards that they once held when they were uh, young in their infancy or years ago, now they've, they're just letting them go. They're trying to become trendy with culture. And they are, they are losing their position. They are falling away. They are being carried away by the era, the era of lawlessness. And the Bible says, be careful. Don't let that happen. And the way you and I don't let that happen, notice what he says in the next verse. But grow in the grace and, uh, the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, the way to keep from falling backward is to con continually be growing. And he says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's another one. Here's one of my favorite ones. Psalm 92. Psalm 92, verse 12, David said this. This thing of growing and moving forward is not just some new idea. It's not some new self-help concept. Being successful and moving forward and growing and maturing and developing is not something new that's just come out with Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins, and, and all these guys. This is something that God's it's always been God's plan. Look at Psalm 92, verse 12. Notice what it says, the righteous, that's the redeemed, the born again. We would say those who are saved, 
Christians, the righteous, notice it says, will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Verse 14, I like what it says. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. That word green means they will stay fresh and alive even the older they get. Now, I like, my favorite translation of this is the King James Version. It's my, it's my signature scripture. They shall string, still bring forth old age, uh, fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Hallelujah. People say to me, boy, you put on some weight. No, I'm just growing in the Lord. Uh, fat and flourishing. That's what it says there. Notice in these three verses, notice, notice the wording that he uses. It's amazing, the wording. He says, they will flourish. He uses the word flourish. He uses the word grow. He uses the word planted, meaning that you're secure. Uses the word bear fruit. You're constantly bearing fruit. He says, you'll stay fresh and you'll stay green. You'll stay alive. And the whole concept is the entirety of your life, regardless of age. The entirety of your life. When I arrived in Murfreesboro to pastor this church uh, 10 years ago, one, one thing I heard that I'd never heard before, even pa- growing up in a little bitty family church, and, and then when I pastored in Allgood, I never heard this term. But I, when I got here, I heard it, and it disturbed me. And we, would try to, we were trying to get things going, try to get people to get involved. And I'd hear people say this all the time. Heard it multiple times. Well, I'm not going to get involved. Why don't you sign up? Why don't you get involved? We need some help in this area. We need help ushering. We, we need help in the children's ministry. We need assistance. We need help. No, I'm not going to get involved. Well, why aren't you going to get involved? Well, I've already paid my dues. I've already paid my dues. Do you think it's possible to pay a sufficient amount to pay Jesus from keeping us from hell? Do you think that's even possible? You must think it is if you say, I've already paid my dues. I can never pay God enough. If I work for a million years, I can never repay Him for how He's helped me and blessed me and delivered me from the power of darkness and translated me into the kingdom of God's dear Son. To say I've paid my dues, that is a rebellious thought. That is a prideful thought. That's saying, I did it within myself to be able to reward the Lord for His eternal gift that He gave to me. How humanistic and prideful could we be? See, you know, I I understand the older we get, we don't jump as high and we don't run as fast. I understand that. But you know, even older people still sign up for the Senior Olympics. There's always something you can do for Christ. There's always something you can do. There's always some place we can get involved. There's some place we can add our gifts, our talent, our energy, our resources. There's something for everybody up until the day we die. The Bible says that we shall bear fruit. We shall be flourishing. We shall grow. We shall stay green, alive. We shall be planted Even in old age. Everybody say old age. age. 
They shall bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Psalm chapter 92, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. Psalm 92, verse number 12, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, I read that. I've read, how many have read, how many have ever heard that before? They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Well, I've read that for years. And then one day, I just, that, they'll grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They'll grow like a cedar. And I thought, what does that mean? What in the world is, they will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. What is, what does that mean? They'll grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I thought a tree just grew. It either grew or didn't grow. But he's given some kind of distinction here. He says they will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. So I just started looking up. I I just started studying on the cedar of trees of Lebanon. And you know, it was crazy, crazy. I thought, eh, cedar tree is just one tall, imposing specimen of timber that grows strong and tall. How wrong I was. The cedar trees of Lebanon are multiple species, multiple heights, multiple styles, multiple types of of, of uh, timber and the the strength of the timber and the porousness of the timber and and the uses. The uses is what was amazing to me. There's multiple ones, but there was three that really got my attention, and one of them was called the little cedar. The little cedar. And you know what got my attention about it? It was the most used cedar tree that was used by the farmers and the agriculture community of that day was the little cedar. And the reason why, it was easy to cut down in the fields and it had some kind of intrinsic, cohesive quality about it because it was used as for the medial task, the simple, non-popular, non-glamorous task of of being fence post for sheep pens. That's what it was used for. He said, you'll grow like a fence post for a sheep pen. Doesn't that excite you about your Christian walk? But I thought, that, what is it about it? And then I discovered that the, the reason they're so popular and the reason they were used so much is because back then... We didn't have, they didn't have machines cutting down trees. They didn't have big motorized equipment in the field. They had uh, ox and wagon. And they would, the farmers, the shepherds would cut these little trees down and they would put it on the back of their wagon to pull it out of the, out of the field. And the amazing thing about these little cedars is they had this cohesive quality that you could throw them on the back of the wagon and wouldn't have to tie them down. Wouldn't have to, the farmer wouldn't have to spend time tying them down. Things. They had this quality about them that when you put a bunch of them together, their limbs were formed in such a way that they would tangle up and hold on to one another. Listen, you'll never grow in your relationship with the Lord if you keep falling off the wagon at every pothole of life. Every sharp turn that comes your way, if you and I just can't stay on, we'll never grow. We have to start back over every time we hit a pothole. And how many of you know there are potholes in life? 
And then the other type of cedar is two others. The other type of cedar was called the fire cedar. And it was another, it wasn't much more than a scrub bush. It was the fire cedar, but they were popular, especially to the shepherds who had to stay up all night long to watch their flocks because the fire cedar could burn for a long time. And here's the amazing thing about it. You've got to remember, they didn't have big lighters, and they didn't have uh, fuel to put on the fire. They still are rubbing sticks to get these things to, to, to light. The fire cedar was used because they discovered that it will ignite with just a spark. There was no pumping, there was no pressuring, there was no priming, there was no pressure. Put, it, you just give it a little bit of a spark and that thing, it will ignite. Listen, you'll never grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if somebody has to pump you up every single day. Eventually, you and I are going to have to start building ourselves up in the faith. Look what it says in 2 Timothy. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Notice he said, you fan it into the flame. Listen, if you're waiting on the preacher to keep you pumped up every week, you are behind. You're never going to... You've got to keep yourself built up. Uh, there's a verse of Scripture that I'm reminded of every day. I use every day. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and in all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His what? Benefits. Every day of my life, I confess, I remind, I rehearse, I do it over again, speak over and over again, the things God has done for me. I keep, that's how I keep myself built up. There's some mornings I wake up and my feet are not ready to hit the floor and I'm not excited about the day. In fact, this morning when I woke up, I told a man, I said, I could just stay in this bed all day long. Anybody else ever feel that way? I could just stay in this bed, my, the whole family. I'd just stay in this bed all day long. Some days I just don't feel like I told her last night. We were sitting there about 10.30 last night and I, she, I said, you know what? She said, what? I said, I don't want to go to church tomorrow. She said, you got to go. You're the preacher. I said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's some days I just don't feel like doing it. But if when I start reminding myself of the benefits that God has given to me, thank you for delivering me from the power of darkness. Thank you that I don't have to fear death. Thank you that I don't have to fear going to hell. Thank you that your angels encamp about me every day. Thank you that my steps are ordered of you. Thank you that I have a sound mind. Thank you that I see things that other people are unable to see. I hear the Spirit of God talking to me. Thank you that health belongs to me. Healing belongs to me. Thank you that my children are blessed. Thank you that my memory's uh, blessed. Thank you. For, and when I start telling the Lord every day, and I, and I go through this list every day. Why? What am I doing? I am fanning into a flame the gift that God has given me. See, as if, if you have to have somebody else to encourage you every day and remind you you're a Christian, you will never grow very far in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, we have to take the responsibility to keep ourselves. we got to ignite with just the spark. And then the third, third cedar that really got my attention was called the humming cedar. 
It, you know, in fact, they didn't even cut this one down. They didn't cut it down. It, it was never used for anything other than this one thing. The Bible, the tradition tells us, not the Bible, tradition tells us that David, King David, tuned his harp by the sound of the humming cedar. And they didn't even tear it down. They didn't cut it down because it was no good for anything unless it was alive. And the reason this was such a popular, and people tried to plant these around their homes and their dwellings, why the villages, the villages tried to have a hedge of these all the way around the village. Because it was, it was the most useful. The way this thing was created and made, God created, when the storms came, the leaves were placed on the branches in such a way that when the storm came, the tree would hum. Listen, you'll never grow in your faith unless you learn to sing in the middle of the storm. You never grow. As long as you allow the storm to determine your countenance, your mood, as long as you allow the fierce gust of the winds and the difficulties of life to determine whether you're going to be up or whether you're going to be down, whether you're going to have a good day or a bad day, as long as you are allowing the circumstances of life to determine your vitality, you will never grow in your faith and your spirituality. It's when we learn to sing in the midst of our storm. And the harder the wind would blow, the louder the trees would hum. And that humming would just give the families and the people of the village an understanding that regardless of what's going on, somebody is able to withstand the storm and sing in the middle of the storm. He said, you will grow like a cedar tree of Lebanon. You'll grow because you are entangled with other believers. You're not falling off. You will grow because you will ignite with just a spark. You can keep yourself built up. And he said you will grow because you have learned to sing in the midst of the storm. We sang about it. I'm going to sing my way out of the valley, he said. So that's what we've been talking about on Sunday morning. But I want to finish up this morning. I want to take the next ten minutes that I have. And I want to talk to you about the value of biblical marriage. The value of biblical marriage. Last week we started talking about this and I shared with you a couple of statistics that are very alarming. Number one, the divorce trend in America is inching downward, which is a wonderful sign, but there's some bad signs that's telling us why it's inching downward. It's because people are waiting longer to get married, nothing wrong with that, and others are choosing cohabitation instead of getting married. They're just going to live together. Instead of getting married. In fact, if uh, adults 50 years of age and older, uh, they're the highest percentage of people living together without marriage, without getting married, than any other uh, demographic in the United States of America today. And the number one reason they're doing this is they say it's because of tax implications. If we get married, it throws us into another tax bracket. Oh, man. I'd hate to stand before God and say, I wasn't obedient because of tax situations. I wouldn't want to do that. For millennia, civilizations have, have defined 
marriage as an exclusive, permanent union of a man and woman for hundreds of years. Not only since America has been a nation, but other civilizations have defined marriage as an exclusive, permanent union of a man and a woman. Yet in June 2015, the Supreme Court, our brilliant thinkers in America, exerted its authority and decided to set aside civilization's standard and legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And unfortunately, there is a trend which is growing in our nation away from traditional biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is on the decline, and today, every day of our lives, you and me, you run into it at people at work, I deal with it constantly. We even get, we even get phone calls here. People saying, we're looking for a church home, we've just moved to the area. But do you believe it's like this? And the, many of them want to, do you believe it's okay to be a, a same-sex marriage? Do you believe it's okay for, for lesbian partnerships? The people are, are looking for churches, they're looking for communities of faith that, that believe, that support them in their beliefs, regardless if they're biblical or not. And we're being, we're being bombarded with these type of ideologies. Is marriage really important in the first place? Is it really important in the first place? And number two, what's, what's the problem with redefining marriage? Yeah, for years, for civilizations, it's been a man and a woman. But why can't we redefine it? Why can't we redefine it? And, and are we really going to say it's wrong for two men or two women to marry each other? If we say that's wrong, isn't that being hateful? Isn't that being intolerant? So we, we, every day we're dealing with these type of uh, ideologies and thought patterns and are introduced. So what do we do about it? How do we, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with today's attack on biblical marriage? How do we deal with it? Well, you know, it's always been attacked. Anything God does, Satan will always attack it. And when Jesus was attacked or asked about biblical marriage, we know this. When the dominant thinkers, when the dominant thinkers in the culture of Jesus questioned him about marriage, he did something very radical. Jesus, the Son of God, quoted the Bible as the authority. Not the Supreme Court, not Congress, not the university professor. The Bible, the Son of the living God, quoted the Bible as the authority. Let me give it to you. Let me show it to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Everybody still with me? Hurry up. I've been here all morning. I'm getting hungry now. Hurry up. Hurry up. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Where are we eating today? I always look forward. Her and her nephews go out to eat every Sunday and they post a selfie. I always look forward to the the nephew's selfie and wherever they're eating. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3. The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read? Have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. 
and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So when the cultural thinkers of that day questioned Jesus about the validity or the rules of marriage, Jesus responded, the Son of God responded with Scripture from the Bible. He defended and defined marriage, and the way he did it is that he quoted Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Look at Genesis chapter 1. This is what he quoted. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he quoted this verse, verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Listen, Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrated that the doctrine of marriage, everybody say marriage, is based on the truth of Genesis history and biology. Anything to switch that is getting away from the plan of God for marriage. Well, it's legal. Well, you can do a lot of legal things that's not God's will for your life. You can get drunk in your home. That's legal. But that's not the will of God for your life. Did you know that? Christians can authoritatively and lovingly say... That God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That's God's design. for. Well, it doesn't always work that way. That's exactly right. And many of you have experienced the heartbreak of divorce, separation, and betrayal. And it's painful. And God's not throwing stones. He's not throwing stones. He's not... Accusing anybody. He's not mad at anybody. That's just the price of living in a fallen world where everybody's not following God's plan. But God's original design. God's original plan and design was one man and one woman for life. But we live in a culture, and this is what Satan does, that questions everything God says. Remember in the Garden of Eden? Adam, Satan came to Eve and Adam and says, Has God said you cannot eat of every tree of the fruit in the garden? Trying to get Adam and Eve to question what God says. All right? Now, let's look at the definition of marriage. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, let me share some important truths, and we'll start to wrap this up. So hang with me, but I don't want you to miss it. Men and women both share in the inexpressible worth of creatures formed in the image of God himself. Men and women, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the apple of his eye. You are a pearl of great... You are... You you as human beings are are precious to God. You are precious to You are the only living thing that can have relationship with Him. He created the earth and the 
cosmos. He created the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. He created all the beauty and the splendor that we see continually. But the only thing that he's ever created that can have relationship with him is mankind. You are inexpressible in your value, in your importance to God. And God speaks loudly from the start of Scripture against any sort of male or female superiority or dominance. Now I know some of you might have been raised in a religious tradition where men are superior and women are inferior. But I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. Look what he says there again in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Notice he didn't say he created males so great and women's just a byproduct. He didn't say that at all. The same splendor that he created and the value he gave to male, he gave to female as well. According to God's design, according to God's design, men are never to be perceived as better than women. And women are never to be perceived as better than men. Both are beautifully and equally created in the image of God. But can I say this? Women are more beautifully created in the image of God to men. I've never seen a man as pretty as my wife is beautiful. And especially when I look out in this crowd and look at these guys. Notice, notice what it says here. Notice, notice that, that according to God's design, men are never to be perceived as better than women. And women are never to be perceived as better than men. Both are beautifully and equally created in the image of God, but they are not identical. Equal dignity does not eliminate distinction. Next slide, bud. Equal dignity does not eliminate distinction. Genesis makes it clear that God creates humans Male and female, and he did it for a reason. Right after he blessed them, he created them, he told them to go multiply. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them. This is right after he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. And everybody that enjoys fishing says, Amen. Everybody that enjoys fishing, say amen. Everybody who likes to eat fish, say amen. All right. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, over the birds of the air. All the hunters, say amen. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. Everybody likes T-bone steak, say Amen. That's our verse right there. Now, he said to do that, but listen, this command is only possible by virtue of the peculiarity of male and female. 
Multiplication would have been impossible if God had created humans male and male or female and female. God's unique design enables us to carry out this command. Now, Satan hates you. Satan hates mankind. He hates mankind. He can't stand mankind. He wants to destroy mankind. And he does not want mankind to propagate. He doesn't want us to multiply. Man is made in the image of God, so every human reminds Satan who God is and who Satan is not. And every time a baby is born, Satan has to think, oh no, there's another little God. There's another little God. There's another. So what did he institute? The spirit of abortion and same-sex union are two of Satan's attempts, worldwide attempts, to stop the multiplication of mankind on planet Earth to keep man from being obedient to the plan and purposes of God. See, this is not just about being tolerant. This is about fulfilling God's plan for the human race. Here's another important truth to remember. When confronted with the cultural argument in favor of same-sex marriage, God's divine design, which is man and woman married for life, God's divine design involves far more than the capacity to reproduce. It's not just about having babies, although that's important. God creates man and woman to cherish their shared equality while complementing their various differences. In Genesis chapter 2, God forms Adam from the dust. He formed him from the dust, breathed nostrils. In, breathe life into his nostrils, placed him in the Garden of Eden. God then brings all these animals in front of Adam and says, you name them. And the reason he gave uh, Adam the assignment to name these animals and see them all, because he wanted Adam to see that none of these have the same nature you have. There might be things around you, but you can't have fellowship with any of them. They're not on the same plane as you. They're not the same level as you. So the Bible says that Adam, after he named all of these, all of these animals and saw that he couldn't have fellowship within them, the Bible says that God says it is not good that man should be alone. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 at that moment, a deep sleep falls on Adam. Now get this. And how did God make Adam? Do you remember, remember again how God made Adam? How did God make Adam? From the dust. Now, if God wanted to make another person, why didn't he make Eve from the dust? That's how he made the first person. He didn't. The Bible says a deep sleep fell on Adam, and God did the first surgery. He took a rib out of Adam's sides and created Eve from that rib. Why? Because God wanted mankind to have an equal. He wanted mankind to have somebody from him an equal, not just another. Not just something else. He wanted mankind to have an equal with him. So God created Eve from Adam's side. Not from his head, so he, she would dominate. Not from his feet, so she would be the slave. But from his side. 
a helpmate that would complement him in every area of life. So marriage is not just about reproducing children. Marriage is about complementing the mate that God has given us for life to be their helper and they be our helper in life just as well. Two dignified people, both molded in the image of their maker. Two diverse people, uniquely designed to complement each other. A male and a female fashioned by God to form one flesh, a physical bond between two bodies where the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference. You say, what does that mean? When the marriage is uh, consummated and and, and the sexual uh, moment occurs between a husband and wife, the deepest point of union where they come together in 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 their intimate parts, the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference. A matrimony marked by unity and diversity. Equality with variety and personal sanctification through shared consummation. And none of this was haphazard. None of it was by accident. God designed it that way. Why? Why? The Bible says because it's a mystery. It shows the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. Here we go. How many of you had a wedding ceremony? How many of you had a wedding ceremony? All right. How many of you had witnesses at your wedding ceremony? How many wished you had the money you spent now spent on that wedding ceremony? Anybody here elope? Anybody elope here? Y'all eloped? Huh? What'd you say? What'd you say? They were smart. Let me, t- let me tell you how inbred, how ingrained this, this biblical marriage is into us, and we don't even realize it. Where we even come up with marriage as a culture, and why we do it, we don't even realize it. Have you ever thought about it? The father and the... Hey, hey you know, the, I've done over a hundred wedding ceremonies, and still I get chill bumps. When all of a sudden the back door opens and the bride appears with the father in her wedding dress. And, and the, and the offici- officiator says, would the congregation please rise? And we rise to stand in honor of that bride. And everybody's eyes, it, that's a great moment. I love it. In fact... When she gets down to front, we could go home as far as I'm concerned. It's over after that. But that's a, where did that come from? Where the father or the brother or the person of so importance in that bride, where does that come from where they escort them down the aisle? Do you know where that comes from? That comes from when God, the Bible says that God brought Eve to Adam. Adam just didn't show up one day and see her out there in the field. God brought her to Adam. That's the father bringing 
his chosen, created possession down to give away to a knot-headed, no-good boy <laughs> that's never spent a dime on her. And we've spent over a quarter of a million dollars or more, and now he's getting her. <laughs> Isn't it a grand moment? <laughs> Well, where'd that come from? It come from our, it come from Bible values. Here's another one. Here's another one. Have you ever thought the groomsman and the bridesmaid? How many of you had groomsmen and bridesmaids? Where'd that come? The Bible says we're encamped about by a cloud of witnesses. That's a biblical. In fact, in fact, if, if, if you had witnesses, you had witnesses because it's a Bible principle. If you don't believe biblical marriage is good, just go over here to Chick-fil-A on Saturday and get married. And don't have nobody show up. The Bible says if one can put a thousand to flight, two can put ten thousand. It's about witnesses being there. They're saying we're in agreement with this. We support this. We're praying for this. That's a Bible principle. It's all Bible. What about the seating of the families on the opposite sides? You know, the groom, the groom, they, they, they sit on the, Amanda and I still do it. What side's the groom? Or what side's the, and we've even gone where we're, for both, you know, they're both in the church, but I'm not officiating. She'll sit on one side and I'll sit on the other. Because we don't want nobody to get upset with us. So we'll just text back and forth. We used to, before we had phones, we'd just give finger signs. We do sign language. So, where does that come from? Where does that husband, groom on one side, bride on the other? That comes from the Old Testament. The blood sacrifice, the, the sacrifice of the blood offering. Where they would bring an, a sacrifice, a lamb, or an, a, a heifer, a cow, or a dove if they were poor. And they would split that sacrifice right down the middle. And they'd put one half of it on one side and another half on the other side. And God, under a blood sacrifice, would walk through the middle. Where does that come from? It comes from the Bible. The things we do in our weddings is all biblical. And we don't even realize it because it's in us. Now the world, the trendy culture is trying to pull us away from that. Here's another one. Here's another one. Look at this one. What's the next one? Number, number four, bud. What's the next? The white wedding dress. Revelation chapter 9. The bride of the Christ is in fine linen, bright and clean. White wedding dress comes from the Bible. The fifth, this one I love. The bridal veil. The bridal veil. What is that all about? There's nothing more, there's nothing more majestic and moving as when the Father pulls that veil back. Brings her down the aisle. And pulls that veil back. That veil represents the veil that, re that stood between the people and the Holy Spirit in the, in the tabernacle. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. So that the Holy Spirit could come out of a secret place and dwell in the hearts of man. In other, in other words, God's saying, I'm not going to withhold from man any wonderful thing that I have. So when that veil goes back, that's the father of the bride saying, I will no longer withhold my most cherished gift to you. That's what that's all about. The joining of hands. 
Nothing more special than at the very end of the ceremony where I will say, y'all join hands. And I lay my hands on their hands and I, and I pronounce them husband and wife. In the blood covenant, the two individuals would join hands. They would cut, cut the palms of their hands just a little bit so it would bleed. And they would join hands and mingle their blood. And we do that today. We don't cut our hands, but we join hands as a sign of mingling of two people becoming one. It's all things we do, but we've forgotten how much we value Biblical marriage. Amen? Stand with me, would you?